All right, if you would, go ahead and open your Bibles to the book of 2 Corinthians. Uh, as Doug mentioned, that over the next several weeks, months, year, we really don't know. It could be, we have no idea. <laughs> it's going to be a while, probably. It's a lot of books to go through. Uh, but over the unforeseeable future, a, a divinely ordained period of time, we as a church body, we're going to be going through multiple books. And I, I'm excited about it. I think it's going to be uh, just a lot of fun, as Doug mentioned, just to see how the Spirit works, to kind of weave the themes from Joshua or Isaiah or one of the Old Testament books that Brian's going to teach from, and weave the themes and the truths from that book in through 2 Corinthians and 1 John and others. And it's just going to be awesome to watch the Spirit work. Um, now, coming out of our ecclesiology series, um, I've also I've just been greatly encouraged. I've been so encouraged by the, over the last 13, 14 weeks, including um, Stephen's sermon last week, uh, just by the, the unity and like-mindedness I feel like it's been creating in, in throughout the body. I can see by some of our discussions, whether it be on Wednesday night, uh, in our groups, or in one-on-one -on -one discussions, I can see many of us coming to a really amazing and great realization of what the church is, how it is to function. What are the roles within the church? How do we, what is the role of the congregation versus the role of the elders versus the role of potential deacons one day? We all have a job to do, and it's been awesome to see people kind of grasp onto that. And I also think it's pretty amazing, and this myself included, that I feel like we are all seeing a greater understanding of the value of the church. How instrumental it is, we are, in the proclamation of Jesus Christ to the world. It is God's plan. The local church is God's plan. I'm, I'm seeing more and more people say, yeah, that's God's plan. This is God's plan. This is what we're supposed to do. This is who we are. This is what it's supposed to look like. This is awesome. And we're getting people excited about the church. I think it's great. I think it's awesome. And I'm also seeing, like, like Stephen brought up last week, that because it's God's plan and because it's Christ's church, not my church, not the pastor's church, it's not your church. We are the church, and it's his church, and he is the chief shepherd. It was purchased by his blood. It is to function in accordance with his word. That's the way the church is to function, in, in accordance with the scriptures. And so we seek Christ in his word. This is what we do this morning. We seek the face of Christ. In, in, we seek the heart of Christ. We seek the heart of God in his word, which means we, we seek to be who he's called us to be namely a biblical church, a biblical church, not a cultural church, not a, not a winning the culture race church, not, a, not appealing to the hearts of the world kind of church, but a biblical church, and not pretending to have it all figured out either. Not because we're a Bible-teaching church do we pretend to have it all figured out, but as a body being dedicated to being conformed and constantly reformed by the scriptures as God reveals more and more to us for the next hundred years. Just constantly conforming and reforming as God reveals more and more to us in scriptures. And I think what we will see is that a growth in like-mindedness, yes. A growth in holiness, yes. A growth in conforming to the scriptures, yes. But also a massive target on our back. The enemy hates God's church. The enemy hates God's church. And so what I think we should be ready for, if it hasn't happened already, is conflict. There's going to be conflict. You combine the fact that the enemy hates God's church with the fact that the church is filled with people that are prone to sin, prone to fleshliness, prone to selfishness, prone to love of comfort, love of self. You combine those two things, the enemy doesn't really have to work too hard to create conflict, to stir up strife, to stir up trouble within the body. But we must understand that much like a marriage that reflects Christ and his church, the church is the body of Christ. 
As much as Satan wants to divide husbands and wives, he wants to divide the church. And so while we're on this earth, we must recognize the schemes of the enemy. We must know the schemes of the enemy when he wants to create conflict within our body. This means that some of us are going to feel rejected sometimes in the body. Some of us are going to feel hurt by one another. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. It will happen to you all if it hasn't already. This is just how the flesh works. Some of you will, will reject someone, whether you meant to or not. It's going to happen. Somewhere along the way, there's going to be disagreements. There's going to be conflicts. There's going to be strife. There's going to be tension. There's going to be demonic opposition. There's going to be suffering, pain, harsh words, harsh tones, prickly attitudes. And you're going to feel hurt by somebody. The question is, is what will we do with the hurt? What will you do with the hurt? Will, we, will you just throw the church away? I'll just find another church. I'll find another church that doesn't have any sinners in that church. And they, they're more biblical than the last church I was at. We'll just find another church that doesn't have anyone that will hurt me there. It'll be easier just to get plugged in. Or will you just sweep it under the rug, pretend it never happened? Or will you disown the, a person that offended you in your heart? I'll stick around, but I'm not dealing with them anymore. I'm not dealing with that person. I don't want to get hurt again. Will we repent? Will we repent if approached by somebody? If someone has the courage to come to you and say, that hurt, will you repent? What kind of heart, listen, what kind of heart does it take to desire fellowship to desire fellowship within the body so much that you are willing to fight for it like you would a marriage. Today we begin our study of 2 Corinthians and we look into the heart of a man who desired the fellowship with the body like that. A man who's been hurt by the church. A man who's been rejected by the church. A man who has been disowned basically by the church. We see how he responds to that hurt. Our hope is that we would join him and, and catch what he has and respond the way Paul responds when this happens. And so before we go to God's word, let's pray uh, for God to do that in our hearts this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this body. We thank you, Lord, for the work you are doing in this body. We thank you for the people you are bringing into this body. We thank you, Lord, for the like-mindedness that you are creating. We pray, God, that that would continue. As we, as we leave the ecclesiology series, Lord, may we never leave the, uh, the truths, Lord, that were established, the foundation that was established in that series, and may we continue just to build and build and build upon it as we continue to study your word. Oh God, let us be a biblical church, not just a Bible teaching church, but a people whose hearts are just gripped with the truth of your word. Lord, you love your bride. You love your church. Lord, give us the heart of Christ. That as he loves the bride, may we love the bride. As he sacrifices himself for the body, may we sacrifice ourselves for the body. As he humbled himself for the body, may we humble ourselves for the body. We ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we start our trek through 2 Corinthians, we're, we're not going to go too far today. We're going to cover verses 1 and 2. But today is mainly going to be a, much a, more of an overview of the book. Anytime we enter into a new book, personally I like it when we go through kind of an overview of the context of the book so we can get a better understanding of what it is that the writer or the author is trying to get across to this particular congregation. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to get more of an overview 
But if you would, we're going to read, go ahead and read the first two verses of 2 Corinthians. So if you're, if you're already there in your Bibles, we're starting in verse 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. And if you don't have your Bible with you, there's probably one in front of you, or there's a handout in the back that has the text at the very top. So feel free to get up and grab one if you, if you need one. Starting chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints who are throughout Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This second epistle, uh, the second letter, this letter to the church in Corinth, it is, it is a difficult letter from an interpretive standpoint. Uh, from a guy who's going to try to preach it over the next several whatevers, uh, it, I've discovered as I was reading through it, it is a quite a difficult book. Uh, one thing I like to do when I start to, uh, when I get a text that I'm going to preach on, I like to read through the whole book over and over again and just try to get the idea of what it is that Paul is trying to say. And as I was reading through it, I was confused, to be honest with you. He, he seemed to be jumping from topic to topic, doctrine to doctrine. One doctrine doesn't seem really connected to the last doctrine. Emotionally, Paul seemed to be all over the place. One minute he was like comforting them. One minute he's rebuking them. The next minute he's rejoicing in their repentance. The next minute he's like yelling at them again. I was like, what is going on with Paul in this letter? Uh, I found some, a lot of interpretive challenges, such as why was, why was Paul, like I said, why was Paul rejoicing in chapter 7 and then rebuking them in 10 through 13? Uh, who is this guy in chapter 2 that needed to be forgiven? Was he the kind of the incestuous man that they were kicking out of the church in 1 Corinthians? Or was it a false teacher or somebody who had kind of grabbed onto the teachings of the false teacher? Chapter 12, Paul has this vision. Is this his vision or is it someone else's vision? What is this thorn in the flesh? And so I was like, well, man, I need to, I need to get to some resources. So I started looking up commentaries and they're all over the place. I came to discover this book is heavily debated by many scholars as to even why Paul wrote it. Like the history that led up to it. It wasn't long before I decided maybe I should do Galatians. <laughs> maybe I should pick something else. But the more I read it, and the more I read it, and the more I read it, the more like, I can't move on from this book. There's so many rich truths in this book. That's just so important for us to hear. It was so important for me to hear. And, and what I learned is that we're, this isn't a, a book that is primarily meant to teach a particular doctrine like other books. We're actually looking into the heart of a person. This is an emotional book. If you know me, ask my wife. I'm a pretty emotional guy. So it, it, it helped me. It was, it was good for me to read it. And so I decided we'll, we'll move on. We'll, keep, we'll, keep, we'll push on through. There's so many texts, so many texts that I want us to hear over the next several months. More than, a, more than a letter that was theological, though it is rich in doctrine, so much doctrine in this book, the doctrine never seemed to be the main point, but rather it looks into the heart of Paul. It's a look into the heart of Paul. It's almost as if Paul intended for the letter to teach, but not by principles, but by way of example. Imitate me as I imitate Christ is almost the theme of this book. Love Christ as I love Christ. Love the church as I love the church. This almost seems to be the theme as throughout this whole book. This letter demonstrates the heart of a Christian. The true heart of a Christian. A, a man who's been so affected by the glory of Christ. He's been so gripped by Christ and he's been so gripped by this gospel that has saved his soul that he's willing to do anything. He's willing to go through anything. He's willing to be shamed, humbled, persecuted, beat down, mocked, mistreated, anything that he may get this gospel out. This message of Christ proclaimed. He's willing to suffer. He's willing to hear the words of Christ that says, greater is the one who is small. And insignificant, he's willing, to be, he's willing to be small so that this Jesus, this Jesus whom he has come to know, this Jesus who has commissioned him as an apostle 
He's going to do anything to make sure that this Jesus is proclaimed to every living creature. Has Jesus gripped you that way? Has he gripped you like that? Has the gospel gripped you like that? Like that. This was Paul. He was an apostle. He's like, you know, Jesus, Paul. No, he's just a man affected by the gospel. He's a man affected by Christ. So to understand this letter, though, to understand this letter and what Paul is aiming at, why he says all that he says, I felt like it was really important to try best I could to help us understand the history of the relationship between Paul and this church. To kind of get our hands around a bit of the context of what's been going on since Paul first met these people called the Corinthians. Now again, some of the nuances of the history of Paul's relationship with this church and the number of letters and the meetings, it's heavily debated. But I've read a lot, and this is where I've landed. I encourage you to study it and research it also. And so first we have to understand the culture within Corinth. If you don't know, Corinth was a very prominent city, very rich and robust culture. It was located on an isthmus, which is basically a strip of land between two lands, with the ports on either side. So you were able to get to either side of Corinth. I think the stretch of land from north to south was about five or six miles. It wasn't a ton. But within this small strip of land was a city called Corinth. And there was about, at the time, about anywhere from 300 to 500,000 people. And because of the importing and exporting that was done in this area, it was a very rich and robust culture, and tons and tons of people from all over the world wanted to experience that which was Corinth. So when you, think of, when you think of the city of Corinth in the, in the ancient world, think of modern-day New York City. A lot of importing, exporting, a lot of boats, a lot of planes, a lot of coming and going, a lot of money, a lot of, a lot of rich people, really philosophically-minded people, imaged people. Think Atlanta, Georgia. Think Cobb County. <laughs> think, think Kennesaw. We're not much different. Uh, the culture within Corinth would have been one of love of prestige. Love of prestige, love of comfort. High intellectual philosophy. This should start sounding familiar to our culture, just a little bit. Just a little bit. We tend to think of culture as this really horrendous city, and we're way better. Our culture is really more and more like Corinth all the time. But there was also pagan worship there including the worship of Aphrodite. In fact, there was an entire temple dedicated to Aphrodite, who was a goddess of love, in which prostitution in that temple was considered a form of worship to this goddess. That was very prominent in this, in this city. And with this culture, this robust culture, this rich culture, this uh, very affluent culture came an eclectic and diverse ethnic group. It was kind of the melting pot of southern Greece. And so this would have included people from all over the world, many Jews. There would have been a lot of Jewish synagogues. And so, of course, this is where Paul first enters as he enters the scene back in Acts 18. He travels into Corinth, and he gets into the synagogues, and he begins to preach Christ as the Messiah to these Jews in these Jewish synagogues. And, of course, these Jews, they say, no, he's not. They reject him, and they blaspheme. And so Paul, what does he do? He even though they are brothers in the flesh, he shakes the dust off his garments and says, I'm going to the Gentiles. But he takes one with him. He has one convert that comes with him named Crispus out of the synagogues. And they begin to devote themselves to the Gentiles in that region. And slowly but surely, they start seeing Gentiles starting to become converted. One after one, there's more conversions and more conversions. God's working. He's, he's removing veils. He's opening hearts. He's softening hearts, and he's uh, saving people in that city. And so from there, the church in Corinth was established, and he stayed with them a year and a half. He didn't leave, just like Pat talked about, he didn't, he didn't get conversions and then bounce. He stayed with them a year and a half ministering to them, loving them, serving them. We found out later that he did not take any money from them. He was a tent builder while he stayed with them. He provided for himself. 
He loved them. He taught them. He established them. He equipped them. And when he felt he was, they were ready, he moved on to another point. About a year and a half later. And in this year and a half, we can understand it would be easy for him to have developed a very deep, strong, loving relationship with these people. He's, he often considers himself a father to people who have come under his care, who, have, uh, who he has been ministering to. These are like his children. But of course, after leaving Corinth, Paul hears of some sexual immorality that is kind of broken into the church. We get that from 1 Corinthians 5.9. And he writes them a letter, which has since been lost. And later he receives a letter from them. He receives a letter from them speaking of fractions in the church. Friction, conflict, disagreement. They also have questions about things like like marriage and so on. And so he writes them 1 Corinthians, which we have to this day. So from there he writes 1 Corinthians, he send, and he sends that to Corinth. And then we get from 1 Corinthians 4, 17 and 16, uh, I'm sorry, 4, 17 and, and chapter 16, 10, that Paul sends Timothy to check on Corinth. We don't know if Timothy's the one that told Paul, but somewhere along the way, Paul hears of an infiltration of false teachers. False teachers that have come in and begin to kind of infiltrate the church. They may have potentially been enemies of Paul. They could have been some of the, uh, the Jewish leaders, uh, Jewish, even Jewish Christian leaders there that were kind of infiltrating the church with Hellenistic culture. There was a lot going on there. But they were enemies of Paul and they began to infiltrate the church. And these false teachers, they were self-proclaimed apostles. So we have to understand that the word apostle means sent one. And they were saying that the ones who sent them had a greater authority than that who sent Paul. Imagine that. They, had, they, they came with a greater authority. In fact, Paul sarcastically later in this book calls them super apostles. Like if I'm just an apostle, they must be super apostles. I, I appreciate his sarcasm. And so we start to see the reasons for the reasoning for Paul's defense of his apostleship in this letter. These false teachers, what they appealed to was the culture that was in Corinth. Remember, the culture was one of riches, prosperity, pride, love of self, love of money. And so these preachers came in and said, those are good things. Look at us. They came in appealing to self-promotion, wealth, comfort. Yeah, even fornication, homosexuality, prosperity, all good. All good. It was the very first health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. Maybe not the very first, but it was one of the early ones. And they were buying it up. And of course, this is starting to sound familiar, familiar to us who have been paying attention to the culture here in our own country. The culture of America is becoming more and more like corn every day, but worse. It's worse because we have, I, we have more of these in our homes than they had in the whole country. We have more of these in our phone. You understand, we have thousands and thousands of Bibles and God's Word access to our fingertips here in this country, and we malign it, or we disregard it, and we do things the way we want it to be done. And that's what they were doing, but we do it too, but it's worse because we have God's Word, and we ignore it. These false teachers, they promoted the external. They promoted wealth and earthly blessings, image and prosperity, and in doing so, they knew in order for them to buy this message, they had to tear Paul down. They would have to malign and discredit Paul as an apostle. They would say that Paul was weak. They were strong. Just look at him. Look how meager he is. Look how well-dressed we are. Look how prominent we are. He can't even talk that good. Look how good of a speaker we are. They were, they, were, they were impressive in speech. Paul was humble. They were proud. Paul was suffering. They were thriving. God must be with us. Look how much he suffers. Comparatively, they would have made it seem that God was with them and not Paul. And they were buying it. They were buying it. They came with letters of recommendation. Paul had no letters just the, just the fruit of his ministry, which is what he would appeal to. 
just the fruit of his ministry, but they were being easily swayed away from Paul and therefore Christ. Paul could not have that. Paul could not have that. So Paul, what does he do? He visits again. He goes back. And in chapter 2 of this letter, we, we see that this visit is, is referred to as the sorrowful visit. It's a sorrowful visit because he is utterly rejected face-to-face by this church. From what we understand, there's clues that says at least one person outright rejects him in front of the whole body and nobody comes to his defense. So they basically said, I approve this message. And so Paul leaves, apparently unsuccessful. He then writes him another letter. He just keeps going. He doesn't stop. But this one is referred to as the severe letter, also in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. This severe letter clearly was one that made them, that he was sad but not sad that he sent. It was a, it was a very painful letter for him to write. He wrote it with many tears, he says. A lot of love in his heart for this church. He wrote it with anguish and tears and sorrow, but with harsh tones. And so he sends Titus with this letter. And as he's waiting anxiously to hear back from Titus and he doesn't hear anything, he moves on to Troas and he says there's, a, there's an opportunity for him for the gospel in Troas. And he's just so anxious about how this church is going to receive this letter. He can't even stay in Troas. These potential evangelism opportunities, he sees a door opening to it. He's like, no, this church here, though, this church needs me. I, I got to know what's going on in this body. And so he leaves Troas to go to Macedonia, and he meets up with Titus there to hear that they've repented based off this letter, and he rejoices in it. And out of the heart, out of that heart of rejoicing and yet still concerned for them that maybe there's still some in the church who are buying the false teacher's message, he pens 2 Corinthians. Which we start in our text today with his introduction. The introduction really is probably the first 11 verses. It's, it's a glorious introduction. We'll get to the next, uh, the next eight verses or uh, nine verses next week. But Paul starts his letter as he often does. But this context gives, it, gives a little bit more weight. And so our main point this morning is this. Paul's love for Christ Paul's love for Christ, Paul's love for his calling produced in him a persevering love for the church. Paul's love for Christ, Paul's love for his calling produced in him a persevering love for the church. Because Christ loved the church, Paul loved the church in a very persevering way, as we see. And so let's look at verse 1. It starts off with Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. So Paul was no self-proclaimed apostle, like these false teachers were. He did not choose his apostleship. He wasn't an apostle of any given culture. He wasn't sent by the culture. He wasn't sent by a denomination. He was sent by Jesus Christ himself the Lord of glory, the Ancient of Days, the one who sits on the throne now and rules with and holds all the world together, like Stephen said last week, that's who sent Paul. And what I love about Paul, what I love about him is that he knows who he is. He knows it. He didn't choose this for himself. It was chosen for him. It was was Christ himself that blinded Paul on the way to Damascus. If you're not familiar with the story, go back to Acts 9 and read the story of Paul's conversion. He was on his way to kill Christians. And he was abruptly stopped by the Lord of glory and was blinded by his glory and converted by Christ. He was on his way to, to do those things. And then Paul actually recounts this story in Acts 26. He recounts this story that he was abruptly stopped and he, he reaccounts what it is that Jesus said to him. I want you to hear 
as I read this from Acts 26, starting in verse 15, I want you to hear the mission that he gives Paul, the calling, okay? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. He was killing Christians. Jesus loves his church so much that he said, you're persecuting me. To love the church is to love Christ. To persecute the church is to persecute Christ. He says, but rise and stand up on your feet. For I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. Here's the calling. I'm sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified with me. Paul heard this, gripped him, and said, that's my calling. Nothing else matters. This is what I'm going to do with my life. That's it. He knew his calling. Again, this is what I love about Paul. He he knew with all his heart who he was, but more importantly, he knew whose he was. He did not belong to himself anymore. He belonged to Christ, and therefore what Christ had commanded of him, he said, yes, Lord, and he did it with every fiber of his being. He wants the people in Corinth to see that nothing. He wants us, therefore, to see that nothing, no false teacher, no, no trial, no suffering, no persecution, no amount of rejection, even by them, would sway him from knowing who he is and whose he is, and he knows, he knows his calling, and he will pursue it with every fiber of his being. This is his example. This is what he's going to present to them in this letter. He's going to present to them what he is called to do. And he's never giving up. He's never giving up. He's not going to give up, not on them as a church, not on his calling. And so what we will see is Paul seeking to defend his apostleship. Out of love for them, out of love for Christ, he's going to defend his apostleship. And he will do it in a way that is in stark contrast to the false apostles or false teachers that have come into this body. The false apostles and false teachers, like I said, they boast in themselves, their accomplishments, their pride, their pedigree. Paul would go the opposite direction. He would swing the pendulum the other way. Paul would go to boast only in the work of the gospel. He would boast only in God's grace and would boast only in the work of the Spirit. He sees no need to promote himself at all. But he would rather boast in his weakness. He would boast in his weakness, boast in his calamities, so that God would be glorified that even though he's being persecuted, that even though he's suffering, the only way I can persevere through this is if God is with me, bringing God all the glory. This is true apostleship. To boast, not in self, but the one who sent you. Truth is, Paul will point to the fact that it is God that is carrying him through all these trials. It is God who is carrying him through trials. It is God that is carrying him through all the calamities. It is God that helps him persevere through all the persecutions, all of which only further prove that he belongs to God. Are you suffering? Are there trials? Is there pain? Is there doubt? On the other side of it, if your faith remains in Christ, there is glory on the other side of the suffering because God is the one who brings you through it. There's joy on the other side because you recognize I am God's. He brought me through it. And he's going to say all this basically to say that God shows his strength in and through Paul's weaknesses. doesn't have to boast. Not in, his, not in anything but his weakness. And so he continues and he says, And Timothy, our brother, 
So he doesn't classify Timothy as, a, as an apostle, but a brother, a dear brother in Christ. And he's writing to the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints who are throughout Achaia, and grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul clarifies that he also knows who they are. He also knows who they are. He knows whose they are. And he says, yes, I am an apostle by the will of God, and I'm writing to the church, the called out ones, the ecclesia, which means they are the sanctified ones, the set apart ones, the holy ones. This body, who have been the most high-maintenance people in his life, from what I can tell. I mean, they've, they've been... Nothing but difficulty. They who have struggled to embrace the teachings of Paul. They've struggled with fornication, paganism, adultering the communion table, tolerating incestual relationships. They've rejected Paul as a friend. They've broken fellowship with him. They've, they've broken fellowship with him as an apostle. They've rejected him and called him a false teacher. This body, because of their repentance, Paul says, you're a church. Your church. He, in Christ-like love for them, he wants them to see that immediately from this letter, I forgive you. I forgive you. I, I affirm that you are saints with the rest in this region. I affirm you as believers in Christ, and he wants them to know their position before God, know their calling, and he wants them to live in a way that's worthy of it. Do you see Paul's heart here? Do you see the heart of Paul? That in spite of rejection, he, he pursues them relentlessly. He visits them. He writes them. He waits anxiously to hear from them. And then he rejoices when he hears that they've repented. Has anyone here been hurt? And you're just anxious for them to repent? You're anxious to say, I forgive you? Or do you tend to just say, I forget them? I don't need them in my life. They've hurt me. I don't want to be hurt again. I'm done. Paul anxiously awaited their repentance. He anxiously pursued them, loved them. And when they repented, he forgave instantly and receive them again. This is the heart of Christ. This is a man who has been infected by the love of Christ. And so in love for them, he writes this letter because in spite of their differences, he knows they are bound in Christ. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the church in Corinth, saints, bound in Christ, bound by the blood of Christ forever. They are eternally bound by the blood of Christ. What we will see going forward over the next several months as we go through this letter, again, is a letter that demonstrates the heart of Paul. I mean, that Paul is wanting to open his heart to this church. He wants to reveal his heart to this church, and he wants them to do the same, to receive him and open their hearts up to him. He knows that they are bound for eternity in Christ and desires true fellowship with them. And so he will spend the next 13 chapters demonstrating and fighting to show them his genuine love for them through the defense of his apostleship. To finish up, I want to give us kind of a very tiny roadmap of what we're going to see over the next 13 chapters. There's at least eight major themes uh, at least that I could see from now, and some of these may get expounded on as we go further into it. There's at least eight major themes that I've seen as I've read through this book, and we'll go through these quickly. Number one, the letter demonstrates Paul's heart for the gift of the church. Chapter one, chapter one, he, he calls them to, re, to recognize the comfort which, with, with which God provides through the local body, a godly comfort as we point one another to the comfort that's found in God. That's where we will go next week. 
Paul, in spite of hardships with this body, he seeks to comfort them. Imagine that. He doesn't begin to rebuke them right away. He starts with comfort. He tells them that he is comforted by them and he seeks God's work in them and his ministry. Number two, number two, we will see a letter that demonstrates Paul's heart for forgiveness. We see this in chapter two. This is a major theme. As we remember, the church has repented and Paul is forgiving them. And we see that Paul's even going to forgive and call them to forgive the one who created a lot of the friction. Number three, we will see a letter that demonstrates Paul's heart for the ministry that God has called him to. He loves the ministry and the calling, and he's going he's to kind of praise this ministry that God has given him. This he refers to as the ministry of the new covenant in chapters three and four. Again, in spite of suffering, in spite of weakness, but also as well as in and through the suffering, Paul is thankful for the work of the Spirit. Because even though I'm suffering, people are being saved. The Spirit is working. Eyes are being opened. Hearts are being softened. And he rejoices in that. Number four, in chapter five, we will see Paul's heart for the gospel, which produces a heart of reconciliation. If you love the gospel, you love reconciliation. And the gospel also produces motivation. Reconciliation and motivation to fulfill the calling to be ambassadors of this reconciliation. It doesn't go just for preaching the gospel. It goes within the body as well. The ministry of reconciliation happens when friction happens. Will you be dedicated to reconcile? Number, number five, we see uh, Paul's heart for holiness, for the holiness of the church, for it to be distinct from the world, not to be married to the philosophies of the world, to the culture of the world. You can't marry what's in here with the world. You can't. They have no part with one another. We see churches all over the world trying to do this. We see local congregations saying, we can be worldly and biblical. We can attract the world and we can be biblical, and you can't. You must be biblical. Number six, we will see in chapter seven, Paul's heart for repentance and the joy it brings him when a believer repents. We know from our study of Luke how much God rejoices in the repentant believer and the repentant sinner. Joy, joy infiltrates from God down into Paul's heart. The love of God has been poured into his heart. So when a believer repents, he rejoices. He rejoices. Number seven, we will see Paul's heart for generosity within the church in chapters eight and nine. This rich, robust city was one of the least generous when it came to the needs of the Jewish people that he was collecting for. And we're going to see his call again for them to give generously in chapters 8 and 9. And then number 8, finally, we will see in chapters 10 through 13, Paul's heart regarding false teachers. His righteous indignation and frustration with false teachers within the church. Paul pulls no punches. He is not gentle he is harsh, he rebukes, somewhat sarcastic, and he pulls no punches with those who seek to steal the sheep away from God's church. He takes that very seriously. So should we. Overall, overall, we will see Paul's heart for Christ, and therefore, his heart for the bride of Christ. His heart for Christ produces a heart for the bride of Christ. That even in the midst of rejection and hurt, Paul's love for Jesus and his gospel produces in him a love for the bride and desires to be reconciled to them no matter what. My hope as we read this letter together as we go through this together, I hope that you will take some time to read through 2 Corinthians as we study this together, as well as the other books. 
that we go through. But take time. If you're in another book, switch to this one. Okay? My hope is that we as a body would catch what it is that Paul has. So much of the Christian life is caught more than taught. And 2 Corinthians is an opportunity to read and, and hear from the heart of Paul and catch what it is that he has. What I mean is that by way of example, I want us to see Paul's heart for Christ, Paul's heart for his calling, and I want us to embrace our love for Christ, embrace our calling. Paul's heart for the gospel. I want our heart for the gospel to be like his. Paul's heart for the church. I want our hearts to match his. And Paul, as Paul imitates Christ in this way, may we from study this letter imitate Paul. Paul desired more than anything, more than anything for Christ to be proclaimed and for the church to flourish. Because he loved Jesus as Christ loves the church. Is that you? Is that you this morning? Is that who you want to be? Is that the trajectory? Are we, are we taking more steps to the right, as dad mentioned, in this way? And greater love for Christ and greater love for the gospel and greater centrality of it all in our lives and a greater ordering of all the things in our life around that. Are we stepping closer to that direction? Or are we going the other direction? You're only, you're only going one way or the other. You're never standing still. I want the heart of Paul. I desperately want the heart of Paul. I want, I want to love the gospel like he loves the gospel. I want to love Christ as he loves Christ. I want to love the church as he loves the church. I want, I want it as much as he did. I want to love it as much as he did. And I want to see Christ as he sees him. I want to be compelled as Paul was compelled. He said, the love of Christ compels me. I want to be compelled by the love of Christ as he is. He may be hurt. He may feel rejected. He may not feel like dealing with it, but Paul is compelled to fight for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the church. And therefore fight to always be reconciled to his brothers and sisters. He doesn't do it because it feels good. He does it because Jesus is worth it. The church is worth it. Therefore, the bride is worth it. The ministry is worth it. The message is worth it. The gospel is worth it. The fellowship is worth it. Humble yourselves and reconcile. I pray, Lord, that we would see and adopt this heart. As Christ loves us, that in spite of our rejection of him, in spite of our rejection of him, he, be, he who is rich became poor so that we might become rich. He suffered for us. That in spite of our rejection, just like Paul's rejection, Paul pursues and loves and rejoices in his reconciliation with this church who has rejected him because he loved the gospel. May we also, with the Spirit of God, working in our hearts, have such a love for Christ that we love the bride just as Christ loves the bride. I can't say it enough. We are the body of Christ. This local body here, an assembly of people who have been plucked out of the world and out of the darkness and into the light of Christ, he has made us a family. Correct? Amen? We've been made holy by the work of Christ on the cross, purchased by his blood, set apart unto a purpose. Therefore, we are eternally bound together. You want to know who you're going to spend eternity, eternity with? Look around. This is who you spend eternity with, right here in this room, forever and ever and ever. This means that even in the midst of rejection and pain and conflict, it, it will come. It will come. We in our flesh, we're going to sin against each other. You're going to feel hurt. You're going to disagree. My hope is that from this inspired scripture, it is the inspired word of God. It's not Paul's opinions. He's Paul, an apostle of Christ, 
You should hear every word after that is coming from Christ himself. My hope is that from this inspired scripture, our hearts would be exhorted to persevere and pursue. Remember that phrase, persevere and pursue. Paul's example is that he fights for the bride. May we, like him, fight for one another, and when necessary, fight for reconciliation because Christ is worth it. The enemy wants to separate us. He wants to use our conflict. He wants to use our disagreements. He wants to use these things within the body to separate us and divide the body of Christ. And if we know this, then we can be ready for it. We can be ready for the schemes of the devil. When hurt comes, pray that your heart would be uneasy with conflict. If you have conflict with a brother or sister in Christ and you're okay with that, you need to repent and pray, I should not be easy with this. This should not be easy in my heart. I should feel conflicted within my soul until I'm reconciled to that person. For the sake of Christ, his church, love one another. Pursue one another. Comfort one another. Never let the enemy get a foothold in our fellowship. It is our fellowship isn't it? It is our fellowship, our unbreakable and devoted love for one another that shines Christ brightly to the world. Body of people who have no, no way within the world to, to all these different opinions, all these different thoughts, ideas, the word of God brings us together. Christ brings us together. And that shines brightly to the world especially when we devote ourselves to never letting that fellowship break, no matter what. Points to the world to Christ, which is our ultimate calling and joy. A new commandment I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, therefore go and love one another. By this, people will know that you are my disciples.